Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and this podcast is a step-by-step action plan to help parents protect and prepare their children for the future. Thank you for joining us. This is episode number 22, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and kids media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. And if this is the first episode you're listening to, we want to tell you that each episode builds upon the preceding ones. So to get the most out of the episodes, we suggest that you listen to them in order. Also, as a guide for you, episode one through eight provide important foundational information. And starting with episode nine, we begin to introduce specific tools and strategies designed to help you protect and prepare your children and family for the future. With the inner IQ, which stands for inner integral qualities, being introduced in episode 12. And we really recommend that you listen to all the inner IQ episodes if you can, because the inner IQ provides parents with an essential framework that they can use to help understand and guide their children's healthy development. Now, in our last episode, we had a great conversation with author and parent coach Karen Locke-Kolp, the host of the podcast, We Turned Out Okay. Karen provided us with some really excellent and practical advice that parents can start using today in their families. Now, in this episode, we'll be talking with family screen time specialist, Gene Rogers author of the book Kids Under Fire, and the director of the Children's Screen Time Action Network. Jean, we're so happy to have you with us. Welcome to Live Above the Noise. Thank you for having me. So, Jean, I thought the way that we would do this today is our whole idea, of course, with Live Above the Noise is to help parents protect and prepare their children for the future. So, in many regards, parents are faced with a real challenge today. And what happens is tech, media, and consumerism for many of us becomes something that is so predominant in our lives that we have a number of issues with them. And we call those trade-offs. And those trade-offs come in about four different areas. And just to go over them briefly, those areas are connectedness and relationships, cognitive control versus stimulus control, circles of influence, and happiness versus well-being. So we're going to get your insights in those four different areas. But to start us off, we just like to hear a little bit about the organization. It's a great organization. I have to tell everybody out there that we are members of this organization, and we really highly recommend to everybody that they join as well. And I think you're going to see why as we go through this whole conversation. But Jean, can you tell us a little bit about the Children's Screen Time Action Network, of which you are the director? Thanks, Wayne. I'd be happy to. So our home is Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood. And in 2016 at CCFC, we were looking at the fact that many people out there were concerned about children's screen time and the different impacts that we're going to be talking about today in their different disciplines. So they were pediatricians, they were teachers, social workers, and parents just all thinking that they were the only ones out there who are concerned or the only ones saying something about it. But that can feel discouraging because the big tech companies and everything going electronic in schools was just overwhelming. 
And we were finding that people needed a place to come together to share the resources they were creating and to have a higher level conversation on what can we do to protect children's health and wellness in the digital age. So is this something that if you're a practitioner that you join, or is this something that you want parents to be involved with too? Because I know you do have a number of parents that are part of the organization as well. Absolutely that we want parents to be with us. Parents are the ones on the front lines. And they're the ones experiencing what's happening to their children. And in many cases, they want to improve life for all of their children's friends, their neighbors, their children's school, not just in their own home. And also they find that when they come together in a community with other parents, they have the peer support and then the kids have the peer support because we all know we don't want to be the bad guy. Kids need to know that other children are being raised with these same values. So definitely we want parent voices. Parents have their skills to offer and we welcome all parents. And you have a wonderful resource library that somebody can go to and get information in a whole bunch of different areas that are of concern to parents as well. Yes. So the resource library we started because parents were saying we're overwhelmed. There's so much information. And screen time is such a hot topic now that there are articles flying all over the internet, studies being interpreted in different ways. And so we've curated the information so that you can search by the age of your child. You can search by a concern. Maybe you're concerned about ADD. Maybe you're concerned about your kid's physical activity level. So you're able to search the resources very easily. And I just want to say all this is on screentimenetwork.org. So you'll find our resource library right there. And for parents, there are groups that they could join. For example, we are part of the Screens and Schools group and the Early Education group. And so there are things that if a parent wants to be involved, there are groups that they can become involved with that are really specific to certain areas that might be of most concern to a particular parent, right? You bet, Wayne. You know, you may not think of yourself as an activist when you're a parent, but you have experience advocating for your own child. And joining one of these groups is a great way to be able to advocate for more children, to be able to learn from the group members. So our work groups are early childhood, screens in schools, mental health, and right now faith communities is a brand new work group that started from our interfaith conversation on screen time webinar. And you'll also see the webinars all archived that you can listen to, which are interviews with the experts. Yeah, that's wonderful. And we've watched those. Every time they come up, we would definitely encourage people to go to the website, start using some of those resources. They're really, really valuable. And just to clarify for parents, there is no cost to doing that, uh, correct, Jean? Um, They can use all those resources and become part of that, and there is no cost to them. Absolutely. Membership is free. We just ask people to spread the word that we're coming together to address this important topic. That's terrific. And you guys also do, and then we'll move on to other things, but through CCFC, you guys do some terrific work. I mean, you're right there, you're working on legislation, you're working on on some of these things that really help protect our children. Did you want to just give us a really brief outline or a few things that have happened lately that have been really impressive that CCFC has done to help protect kids out there? So CCFC is really the premier organization that is a watchdog against corporations that target children with advertising. Most currently, we've taken on YouTube in their area of privacy for children and gotten the FTC to agree to fine YouTube for violating the Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act, COPPA. 
I'm sure many people don't even know that exists. It's a great thing to take a look at to understand that you have rights as a parent also. And that even when your child is on an app at school, when your child is on online curriculum, that they are often being tracked, that their data is being used by these big tech companies, and that protections written into COPPA should be able to cover those to be able to protect your child from being tracked by large corporations. So again, COPPA, Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act. And you did a wonderful webinar a while back, and I know that parents can get that on your site. And it was about apps and what parents need to be aware of when they are looking at their children's apps and various things to help make those safer for their children. It was a, I thought it was a great webinar. If you take a look on screentimenetwork.org at our Action Network Live, those are our webinars, which were actually our live interviews with the experts. And that one that you're talking about, we interviewed students at Georgetown Law. They're at the Institute for Public Representation. So as a parent, I know if my child goes down the street to a friend's house, I've checked that house out. I know who's there and I know what they allow in that home or that it's a safe place for my children. When they go online, we don't have as much information about where they're going. So that webinar takes a look at what's happening to children. For example, the students at Georgetown found that, along with the research of Dr. Jenny Rudesky, that many of these apps are taking advantage of the trusting relationship that kids have with the characters is being exploited and used against them. So for example, if you don't click and buy something in the app, the character will cry and be disappointed in the child. And it's just heartbreaking to think that that would be something that that someone would invent to take advantage of a child. It's really disappointing to hear. And it's really important that parents know these things when they're, when they're looking at their kids' use of the internet and use of their kids' apps. So thank you for all of that. Um, let's move on to some of the things that I'd mentioned to begin with, with regard to these four trade-offs. Tech media and consumerism these days is so predominant and any of us can just get overwhelmed and not even realize what's happening as we spend more and more time and more and more of our lives are being sort of pulled down the rabbit hole. So we have these four trade-offs. So let's just start those and and I'm going to bring in Rob here. Rob, let's do the first one here. Let's talk about connectedness and relationship first and, and how parents really and families are finding this to be kind of a drip, drip, drip thing where you don't even really realize what's happening until all of a sudden you've lost a connection or you've lost some quality of relationship. So Rob, could you speak to that a bit? Yeah. Um, hi, Jean. Let's talk a little bit about the, the framework, first of all, for that, which is called the inner IQ. And one of the things that we talk about in Live Above the Noise for parents is there has to be a different framework than the current framework that they may not even have or that the schools are providing. So to refresh any of the listeners on this topic, IQ is being intellectual quotient as what's typically used to measure how smart somebody is. But when you think about what makes a kid smart, we like to think of the communication dimension as one of the three big dimensions that are necessary in the framework for parents and three forms of that, which is me communication, how I speak to myself, we communication, how I communicate with others, and T communication, 
which goes beyond both of those into some other higher levels of communication, however that is for you, whether it's communicating with nature, whether it's communicating through a spiritual framework. It's that special sort of indefinable communication that we know is magical and at a different level, but we don't have to put a label on it other than it's different and it's beyond the personal. So with those three types of communication, if you look at the interaction between the three, and then you start looking at connectedness today and you say, what happens when me communication, that is how I talk to myself, communicate with myself, falls apart or begins to break down because we communication becomes more dominant. And the interaction in my mind, and this is our point of view at Live Above the Noise, is when you think about noise and you think about living above it, what does that really mean? And what what does noise mean that I want to get above and beyond? And one of the ways that most people think about noise is as an external dimension, distraction, or it's a distortion, or it's the overload. What they fail to recognize is that outside noise creates inside noise. And so because the brain is going to rewire till death, starting at birth, and continuously rewire, and then you start thinking about the sensors that you have, the filters that you have for the external or the outside noise coming in, And then you start looking at how that is going to impact the inner noise that you live with on a day-to-day basis. And I, I think that's what we're seeing is this new thing that has developed that's sort of under the radar, which is my inner noise is so busy based on my outer noise that I'm disconnecting from people I'm overloaded. And then um, I was mentioning to Wayne earlier that the new data on teen suicide is a 56% increase in teen suicide in the last 10 years and a 60% increase in teen depression. And if you just stop for a minute and go, what in the world happened in the last 10 years that's going to change teen depression and teen suicide? and raise it to that extraordinary level, which has never been like this historically. And it's interesting, too, because if you go back to the origin of smartphones or when they really took hold, it's typically thought about as around 2007 is when smartphones took over and really began their climb into popularity. So all of a sudden, we have this combination of events. We have the smartphone and external noise taking precedent. We have internal noise changing, and we have a breakdown in communication because my toolbox, which is my inner awareness, my inner smartness, is breaking down based on external factors around me. So It's a long explanation for the answer to your question about connectedness. But if I cannot connect with myself in order to have the toolbox internally to understand who I am and what makes me connect to other people and how to shape that in ways that are beneficial to others, and I live my life on the outside of myself in the world of smartphones and external digital media, it's going to make a lot of sense that this is 
a completely different period of time than ever before in history and something we really, really have to pay attention to. And just to clarify for everybody, those three things, me communication, we communication, and T communication are part of the inner IQ, nine inner integral qualities that children really need to have these days to be able to uh, protect and prepare them for the future. And they are not what we normally think of as the IQ. So this is a new kind of IQ. So Gene, in your work, so many of the organizations you have deal with this problem of loss of connectedness and relationships and a diminishment somehow in the quality of relationships. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So Rob, I really appreciate your explanation and your discussion about teens and the sad state of mental health among teens right now and the reason that we hope to start younger and younger to help children empower themselves the way your inner IQ is doing. But it made me think of, there's an organization called New Outlooks in Science and Engineering, and they did a survey a number of years ago with teen girls, and they found that most teen girls want to be, in this country anyway, and in many countries, want to be models or actresses rather than scientists, chemists, doctors. Then they interviewed girls in Bosnia, and they found that they wanted to be lawyers and journalists. Well, those girls are not exposed to as much of that external noise that you're talking about, that noise that tells them they need to be thin, they need to be beautiful, they need to be something different than they are, they need to wear makeup really young. One of the saddest things I saw recently was a video on YouTube of a six-year-old girl putting on makeup. Now, if you think of the skin of a beautiful six-year-old girl being so precious and flawless in itself, and her teaching other girls how to put makeup on, just a tragedy in my mind. And it's just economics, isn't it? Simply trying to get some followers, some views on YouTube to create an income stream here. I mean, that is what it's about. And that's why we say it's tech, media, and consumerism, the three of them together that we're talking about. We're not just talking about tech here. Yeah, we call that the power partners because one of them is strong in and of itself, any one of those dimensions. But when you start combining those dimensions, and I've been around that world where the tech keeps increasing, the algorithms keep unfolding, teams of people are at work trying to figure out how to uh, manipulate and control people. And then that's embedded into the mediums. And then at the same time, that combination of the algorithms, the technology, the mediums go right out into the companies that are trying to manipulate kids and sell their products. And so what you were just talking about also brings up the second point that we really emphasize for parents is this distinction between happiness and well-being. And, you know, when you talk to a parent about like being a model, having your five-year-old, six-year-old be a, a starlet or enter the entertainment world, oftentimes the thinking is they're happier when they're involved in entertainment and happy, happy. And that idea of happiness in my mind has been distorted in this culture. And really, if you ask the question of what is the difference between somebody being happy or some a parent that is interested in their child's happiness or a parent that's interested in their child's well-being, it's a huge, absolutely huge difference because happiness can be like very, very short term. 
This makes my child happy to hand them the smartphone in the car so they can watch the cartoon. That makes them happy. And instead, it's like, what is good for your child's well-being is not necessarily the same thing and does not necessarily involve happiness. It's a long-term kind of a thing where if you understand the big picture of what well-being is, then it's a completely different way to approach how to raise a child and what the long-term benefits are for well-being. And that's harder, much, much harder, much more complicated, much more involved. But just making the distinction, like it's not so much about happiness unless happiness is a subcomponent of well-being, but they're not the kind of things that you can compare and and assume are the same at all. You know, Rob, you are on the money with that. We know that it's a corporation behind that manipulation of the child and the parent. So it's very easy to get that short-term yes and buy the child something. Very easy to get that short-term yes to hand the child the phone in the car. That's easy. But parents think that we're judging them or that we're saying, you know, we don't understand how stressed you are and how that relieves the stress. We do understand. There's no judgment involved here for parents of themselves judging yourself. There's enough to be guilty about in parenting that we don't need to be guilty about screens. But we are saying that there's a long-term picture here. It's not about that moment. It's about shaping that child's behavior character and wants and needs as they grow. And it's often parents come to us then when their children are teens and they're having serious problems with the consumerism and the tech overuse. But overuse or excessive use can create some of these problems. And as I said earlier, the younger we catch them, the more we're going to be able to have the result that we want when the kids are teenagers. And, you know, you said another thing there, Gene, that I think is important for parents to understand is the difference between a want and a need, because we can get into the research on what people need, what are the drivers, what are underneath their behaviors. That's things like autonomy and competence and relatedness. But that's another area that gets confused. My child Mm -hmm. wants this, so therefore they need that. It's very, very different to understand that they're going to want a lot of things that are not necessarily fulfilling the needs at the kind of level that are good for them. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think it's interesting. We talk about protect and prepare. Many of the aspects that are happening in tech media and consumerism are under the surface, diminishing the child's ability to have the kind of future that they want. And I think parents have to be aware that the small things are not that small, really. They're things that build. And I know, Rob, as a developmental psychologist, there are these stages, these stages in development that need to be reached for you to be able to have that full range of abilities when you get to be an adult. And once the legs are knocked out from under those things, it becomes a very serious problem that can affect your whole life. We need to be proactive to be able to protect their ability to have the kind of future that they deserve. I think also, Wayne, if parents will understand that that their child is biology, psychology, and culture, all three simultaneously, and that the brain is rewiring, and that that first 25 years, it's still incomplete, then when you build that preparation background and use those developmental stages, you're aware of each stage, what they can and cannot do, and how to move them into the next stage 
based on that rewiring process and how the culture around the child, the circles of influence around the child, can often disrupt that entire process and impede its development if you're not careful. When you say it's biology, psychology, and culture, can you just clarify what you mean by that? Yeah, well, it's easy to think that psychology is what's going on. My child's psychology is the only thing. You know, I have to be uh, preparing my child because they don't feel well or they're upset. There's so much weight being placed on anxiety and depression and they're nervous and they're, it takes front stage often without understanding that you can't leave it just a psychology when you know that the biology underneath that is just as relative and that the brain is constantly adjusting to information coming in and rewiring according to that info coming in. And it's biological, and so is the neurochemistry of what is pleasure-inducing. So if you forget those pieces and you understand that they're drawn to the stimulus outside because it's inducing a chemical change in their body, which is then relative to rewiring their brain, That's the whole biological underpinning of what the psychology and the emotional state is about. And therefore, by including culture that's doing that, psychology that's responding to the culture, and biology that's responding also to that stimulus input and that information, that's the big picture that you've got to be constantly aware of when you keep handing stimuli, stimuli, pleasure-inducing stimuli, there's a shift. It's going to rewire to want more pleasure-inducing stimuli. And then it's going to seem like thinking or cognitive processing is too hard. It's too much work. It's painful instead of being part of the entire process. Well, and that takes us into the uh, the next trade-off, and that is uh, cognitive control versus stimulus control. Rob, did you want to talk about cognitive control versus stimulus control a little bit, and then we can talk about it together? Yeah, well, I think cognitive control is a great concept, and for some people, it's a little bit complicated. What do you mean by cognitive control? So when we talk on some of the episodes, we talk about the objective to shoot for is that you have a center point between outside communication and inside communication, ideal place to be in your life and in your communication skills. And you have the ability to shift your center point into the inside communication or out to the outside communication because you're in charge of that. And Rob, I know you have something that can help us visualize the center point. Can you tell us about that? There's an easy way to visualize the center point communication concept of inside and outside. And that is Think about a blank piece of paper with a horizontal line going across the center of the paper from the left side to the right side. And then imagine there's a ping pong ball or a marble straight in the middle of that line, directly in the center. That's your center point for communication. That center point should be able to go left into your inner communication and right into your outer communication. It should be flexible. So you have a choice to 
use your inner communication or your outer communication at all times. When you lose that choice to do that and your inner communication gives way to stimulus outside communication so that you begin to not only lose it, but dislike it and not love your mind because you don't use your mind. And that toolbox then begins to go away. And after a while, you've lost something absolutely critical because the brain is going to rewire your processing of information differently. And you're not even going to recognize that that is a tool that is lost. And when we listen to teachers like Matt and Joe and their kinds of discussions of what's happening in the classroom, what they're saying is things like the kids can't go to the restroom without putting their earbuds in, even if it's a five-minute trip to the restroom. What they actually said is they're not familiar or happy or in love with their inner communication. They would rather be in love with their outer communication. So the question asked is, what's the price that they will pay? What are the trade-offs they're going to make over time for spending more and more and more time in the outside world and not enough time in their inner self-reflective skill? That's a huge, huge trade-off to make. And in the inside world is where you do have the tools and you do develop those skills over time as a muscle. And that's cognitive control. And stimulus control is those factors pulling you out, out, out. And people are good at creating those factors. And they're excellent at creating it in a way that it becomes dopamine or pleasure induction for the outside stimulus control. So all we have to do is take a second and look at what has happened in the film industry to the special effects. The name of the game is in special effects, and I've been in this world talking to these people, is what haven't we done before that nobody will get bored with because they've never seen this before? And so let's do a new kind of car crash. It's like, how many ways can we do this for creating stimulus control that will keep the person involved in the outside stimulus? That's the difference. And what we do know from the research is that a person loses himself here. They are not at the same time demonstrating cognitive control while they're involved in stimulus control that gets more and higher in terms of the potential to do that with special effects and with new technologies. So really a very important question to ask is like, well, we do know that technologists are hard at work creating new technology, new media, new forms of stimulus control that are more powerful and will become more powerful. And if we already see cognitive control diminishing in students that are at the secondary level, and when you ask the question, what's the stimulus going to be like in five years with new forms of technology, if we've already pulled kids out of their cognitive control at this point in time, where is this all going? And what are the chances of children regaining a sense of cognitive control and at least understanding something like the center point where they have the choice to go into cognitive control or be drawn outside into stimulus control? It's a really fascinating question for the future. I think the best gift that you can give your kids is the time and space to get to know themselves, to get to know their thoughts, and to be able to process their day. Absolutely. That is so, so important. And we all lose that. 
you know, I don't know how many times during the day or the week you realize that you've been focused on something outside of you constantly. And so for a child that hasn't already developed the ability to be reflective, it's extremely important that we give them that opportunity. And I'm glad you brought up the idea of that quiet time because we have an idea in terms of how parents can create that space and turn it into a ritual as early as possible, and then also create a framework that we call the inner theater, which is like there is the outer theater, and that's when you're looking at entertainment and the outside stimulation. And you, my child, have your own inner theater. And if that concept of creating and understanding your mind from the perspective of a normal early child developmental stage of fantasy and imagination. And if that idea of your inner theater is beautiful and creative and important and taught to a child as early as possible by their parents and done through stories, when they're young enough that they are listening to stories about characters and as they move through their developmental stages, their inner theater then can be reflective of what's going on in the characters in her theater. So it gives parents a framework to say, what do you think the character is thinking right now? Are you thinking the same thing in your inner theater? What do you think the character's values are? What makes that character important to you? Those kinds of questions can be introduced early based on storytelling and stories and provide sort of a framework for a child starting to understand and know that they have a different kind of processing than external processing and external stimulation. And it's inside and it's highly valuable. So there's lots of tools and techniques to teach inner theater as early as possible. And for parents who want to find out more about the inner theater, which we also call the motivational theater, we talk about that in episode 10. So you can find some more information there. You know, Rob, I'm really glad that you brought that up, that you are suggesting a dialogue for parents there because we work with the American Academy of Pediatrics and their media guidelines for children suggest that parents co-view and co-teach whatever is on the screen. And that's really what you're saying. Have a dialogue about it talk about it. And often parents use it as a babysitter. And we're not saying that that will never happen. But if you know the characters, if you get to know what your child is watching, and like I said earlier, as though they were going to that house down the street, you would want to know where they were going. So if you get to know those characters, then you can have a conversation with them. And another thing that occurred to me as a parent when you were talking about the inner theater is that each of my children are different. And each one of them is so unique and that that inner theater is so different for each one of them, and that how much I would be missing out if I didn't know them in that way, if they didn't have that experience in life because they were so focused on the input from the media. And the next of the four trade-offs is circles of influence. With regard to circles of influence, parents, I think, are often put in this situation where, just as you alluded to earlier, They feel like, well, how can my child be the only one that doesn't get this? Is it unfair to them? Are they going to be ostracized? Are they going to be feeling bad about this if I restrict their tech or if I do whatever? I'm sure that you deal with this all the time, Gina. Do you have some thoughts in terms of some help for parents? Sure, Wayne. I really appreciate this discussion because when they get to that point where it's less fun to be with them, (laughs) 
and they think that it's less fun to be with us, that's a key time where it's important that you have stacked a child's life with other adults who are good role models for your child and to be thinking about what kind of role models are they seeing in the media that they're watching. So as far as parents getting support for that kind of sort of trajectory of raising your kids, we have in the Children's Screen Time Action Network, the Wait Until Eighth group. I know that you have both spoken to Adrian Principe, who has the Concord Promise group. So groups of parents are forming all over the country and all over the world who want to be helping each other to create those supportive circles of influence for the kids. And your listeners might be familiar with Bronfenbrenner's ecological systems theory. And that's a theory of child development. And if you look at it on the internet, it's circles and inside the circle is the individual. So in this case, we're talking about the child. And then the microsystem around that child would be their home, their school, their neighborhood, their immediate family. And then when we go out another circle into the mesosystem, we'd be maybe the parents' workplace or the neighbor's friends. So it brings you out to the many, many people in a child's life. And the tech used to be in one of the outer circles. But now if you think about a child bringing that tablet into the bedroom by themselves without that discussion that we're talking about with the parents asking them questions, then it brings the media right into the intimate relationship with a child without other adult influences. And that's just something for parents to think about. How many people are around the child when they are using these things? The more that a child is isolated with a device, the scarier it is or the less supportive it is to the parents. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. So the outside circles that are meant to be outside and appropriate to their development so that they sort of get to the place where they can handle it based on the inside circles of influence, having laid the foundation and the value system and the developmental stability. Then you go to the outside, but that's reversed now where parents are allowing the outside circles to be introduced into the inner circles earlier. And here we're back again to, because it makes my child happy. And there's a well-being happiness distinction again, where that's not good for well-being. And it's pretty black and white now. If you train the brain too early in the outside circles, you lose the important dimensions that are necessary for the foundations on the inside circles. And just switching gears a little bit here, Gene, I'm sure you get a lot of questions from parents and families. What are some of the most frequent questions that you get? The most frequent questions that we get are, what ages are correct to introduce different media? So what age should I give my child a smartphone? What age should they have a tablet? And time, how many hours a day is appropriate? And while I used to say to parents, there's no right answer and it's different for every child, I do think they can point to your project, the choiceful family project and realize we do have a choice here. We can make some decisions. We can change them later. I would say families that develop their own contract have really great success. When kids sign something, there is evidence that they commit to it. So if we have a contract that we're not going to have TV for an hour before bed, then they get into a routine of it. Also, parents seem to be really fearful of that power struggle. 
where the kids really, really want it. And we know why they really want it. It's not just because they want it. It's because they're being persuaded to want it by the corporations that are designing these things. One example I like to use is, well, if soccer stopped this week, they wouldn't be having a fit. (laughs) I think your audience may be familiar with the fact that Fortnite went black for a couple of days. And um, that kids were kicking in their computer screens, screaming and pounding the floor and really very, very physically violent and upset that they couldn't play Fortnite. And parents were thinking, is there anything else in my child's life that would cause such distress? So it causes a lot of distress within the child. It causes a lot of distress within the family. And the feeling of empowerment, I do have a choice. I can make some rules. We can try them. And quite often, to be honest with you, the kids love it. And that's what gives me hope is when we hear from kids and kids say, you know what? I was with my family more when we turned it off. I could play outside more. I could make something. So it's often the kids who realize the benefits of lowering the intake even more than the parents do. Is it a bit of relief that you think some kids have to say, okay, well, my parents not going to allow me. So that allows me not to be tied in with this or it allows me to tell my friends that I can't be and blame it on the parent? And should the parent just be willing to say, okay, I'll take that blame? Oh, yes. As you say, kids love limits with anything. As a parent educator, you know, kids love limits as far as sugar intake, as far as what they can and can't do. And so it's going to make them feel safe for you to have rules around media not only safe as far as what they're seeing or what's out there could be scary predators, but safe developmentally, that they're going to understand that somebody's watching what I'm doing and cares. So they love limits. They do love to blame the parents. And like I'm saying, if joining one of our parent groups helps you to have the support of other parents, please do so because it's a scary thing to do on your own. But I would say once you try it also, sometimes you have to put up with a week or two of whining or kicking or screaming, even like the parents who experienced this week with Fortnite. So putting up with it, gradually you'll see the child is getting used to the new routine, appreciating it, finding other skills, other surprising adventures that they weren't able to do when they had too much of that excessive screen use. Rob, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, one thing, I don't know if it came through or it's a little tricky to understand, but it's about this idea of choice also. And our concept is that most of us think about choice as decision-making. So it's like, that's a good decision. That's a bad decision. End of discussion. But in this day and age, in overload and disruption and distortion and distraction, in a world that is this different now than it was 20 years ago. We expanded the idea into choiceful. And the reason we did that is to say, if you think about choicefulness as different than choice in the way that we're proposing that there's a funnel, kind of a concept or a sequence that it would be wise to understand, and it goes from awareness to ability to control That's the funnel. That's the sequence of choicefulness. And that's a difference than choice. And the reason it's a difference is because if you think about your own life and your own past, and you say, how did I develop my own abilities in order to turn my abilities into controlling the world around me? 
I did that because I became more and more aware of certain things that I could do that were important to me, my passions, my skills. I increased my awareness so I could then unfold into my abilities better and control my future using those abilities in different ways. So that sort of hierarchy, that kind of funnel of choice fullness going from awareness to ability to control puts you in a position of saying, okay, if that is true, and that's what it's about to create my future more powerfully, then how's my awareness doing? Because that's the gatekeeper. That's on the front end. And that's why when you start thinking about external stimulus control versus internal cognitive control, if you don't do that and you allow your awareness to be taken out as opposed to developing that center point where it's flexible, you lose the ability to unfold and create your abilities and your control in the future. And I think that's what we're seeing when we start employers saying, I wouldn't hire that student. That person doesn't have a certain set of skills. What they really could be saying is they've been so immersed in external stimulus control that they've lost the internal cognitive control, and therefore they don't know how to interact with people and connect to people in the workplace like I would like them, nor do they know how to create leadership, problem-solving, critical thinking, creative kinds of activities as much as I would like them to also. So that's why we're looking at choice fullness as being sort of a different kind of paradigm for understanding all three of those levels. And Gene, to end this episode, is there anything else that you want to tell parents and families about? Sure. I just want to tell parents about our annual screen-free week. Hundreds of thousands of people all over the world, schools and families, neighborhoods, faith communities, whole cities celebrate it. Just an opportunity to unplug from entertainment screens. So during that week, we realized kids still need to do their homework on a screen, perhaps, and parents need to use it for work. But it's an opportunity and there are events that happen and they can go to screenfree.org to learn more about it and take the Screen Free Week pledge. Kids, again, love having their pledge cards during Screen Free Week. And one thing that we've found is that siblings get along better. So there are all kinds of surprises with it. And I just wanted to invite your audience to participate in Screen Free Week, May 4th through the 10th of 2020. Well, thank you so much for that. And have you found that people who participate in Screen Free Week, families that do, do you find that the week comes and it goes Or do you find that there are things that parents and families find out that they like to the point of actually incorporating it into their lives going forward? Absolutely. We have many stories about lasting habits that have started on Screen Free Week. So where they may not go a whole week without screens, they may do one day a week. They may decide on a screen-free vacation or screen-free camp or even just a screen-free evening where it's a board game night. So families definitely take habits. um, And once again, the children are very inspiring. Children write essays about their experiences on screen-free week. And many of them start off by saying it was hard. It wasn't easy to begin with, but they loved it by the end. And their friends and their family participating makes a big difference. Well, thanks so much, Gene. It's been a wonderful conversation, and we really appreciate all your insights and information. 
Also, we want to thank you for the great work that your organization does, and we encourage our listeners to go to your website, ScreenTimeNetwork.org, check out all the excellent resources there, and join the organization. So that's our episode for today. And just as a reminder, you can listen to us and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and many other podcast providers. So until the next episode, thank you for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes, tips and tools, and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.